Hi, it's Zoe Routh, and if you're a first-time listener, welcome to the show. I'm so grateful to have you here. And if you're a return listener, thanks for tuning in again. I'm so grateful to everyone to let me share the space between their ears, for a little while anyway, in a non-creepy, kind of weird, not kind of weird way. <laughs> well, today we have Kieran Flanagan, and she's the co-founder of the Impossible Institute. She is hilarious and extremely intelligent. I really love speaking with her on this interview. She is a speaker, a trainer, and author who helps organizations and individuals harness the commercial power of creativity. She really focuses on commercial creativity, and I was struck by her genius in that. She demystifies a whole bunch of myths that come with creativity and helps us punters like me and you do creativity a whole bunch better. She is rated in the top 25 C-suite speakers to watch by Meetings and Conventions USA, and she has been one of the youngest creative directors to lead an award-winning agency, and she was the smarts behind the most successful product launch in Australian history. She's headed up Australia's premier creative school, won awards all over the planet for her thinking and effectiveness, and is also on the faculty at Thought Leaders International. So she's awesome, and I hope you'll enjoy this interview as much as I did. Let's do it. Welcome, Kieran. I'm so excited to have you here and to talk about all the wonderful work that you do. And I wanted to ask you, first of all, um, how did you get started co-founding the Impossible Institute with Dan Gregory? Well, I guess the co-founding the Impossible Institute was reasonably natural as it wasn't our first business together. Dan and I had uh, an advertising agency early in our careers and I actually met Dan in creativity school, you could call it, and we worked for another guy who was starting an advertising agency and we became co-owners of that business as we built it alongside him. So I think founding the Impossible Institute was a fairly natural progression from having people, I guess, pay us to solve the problems to teaching other people how to solve the problems. We decided that we could potentially help more if we taught people the process rather than being, ta-da, we have the answer and aren't we special? Well, that's a big distinction, right? So teaching people how to be creative. And I know because I've heard you speak and I suffer this from uh, myself is like, I think of creative people as they're like gifted with this magical genius that allows them to spew forth these amazing ideas. And it's a little bit intimidating for those of us who consider ourselves uh, non-creative, but I know you think that's a myth. So tell me a little bit about how you teach people to be creative. Yes, I, I do think it's a giant myth. It's a useful myth in a way to isolate creativity and pretend there's a magical unicorn quality to it. <laughs> that, you know, you vomit rainbows and you sparkle <laughs> with your ideas. Uh, you know, I think creative people have sort of put themselves away a little and went, yes, we're very special. Uh, but I don't believe that. And I have, I used to run Australia's creative school called Award and I've taught all kinds of thinkers and people from all kinds of fields and backgrounds to be creative. I'm using my fingers to make inverted commas, everybody. So I have seen firsthand that it's a skill, not a talent. And most of us, you're right, we think it's a talent. We think it's effortless. It's easy. 
we use so much language around creativity to reinforce this, you know, a moment when the inspiration struck, the muse, a flash of inspiration, a stroke of genius. We use all that kind of language to reinforce the notion. But creativity is a whole lot of hard work. It literally is relentless curiosity and a willingness to keep going in the face of rejection and getting your ideas that don't work. You know, it's as much getting ideas that don't work as it is as getting ideas that work. And if you play a numbers game, at some point an idea just crumbles. And it's this magic moment where you've been chipping away at it and it's almost like you hit that magic point and it feels like the idea is effortless at that moment often. But like most things, getting to that point takes a whole lot of sweat. I call it brain sweat. Uh, you need a sweaty brain, but most of us don't actually think of it that way and we think our brain doesn't need to do that much work. So uh, teaching people to do the work is, I guess, the biggest thing we do around creativity. I like that idea of brain sweat and the idea that you, you hit this like magical point where you chip, chip, chip and ta-da! Is there like some sort of numerical guideline to that or does it differ uh, from project to project? It, it does differ, but I joke and in my experience, most people fall in love with their second or third idea. So that most human beings who don't think they're creative, by the way, I should make a distinction now that when I say creativity, I mean creativity as in problem solving and thinking not artistry and most of us have gotten really confused about that as well at school we tend to pick a side where we're on the creative side or the mathematical science side and I don't think that distinction is helpful or true because mathematics and science and that side actually require creativity and problem solving uh, and artistry can or may not be creative. It can go either way. And your ability to draw is not your ability to think. And you can be hopeless at art and super creative. So I think that's hugely important distinction for people to hold in their mind while we're talking creativity. Uh, but creativity is, so most people fall in love with their second or third ideas. So they do one idea. It's not very good. They do another idea. It's so much better that it looks very attractive. They often do a third to be diligent and it's not very good again. So the second one is the one they go for. Sometimes they extend it out to five. So they do one and number two and number three look pretty good and four or five are bad. So they go back to that middle ground. Whereas we uh, do hundreds of ideas, thousands of ideas. Oh, my God. Uh, it, you just wear away obvious you wear away reasons that won't work. And your brain's an amazing machine in a way. It, it's, it's almost the more parameters you put in place, the more you back it into a corner, it's suddenly you're able to solve your way out of it. And that only happens usually with volume. So you back your way into a corner by just <laughs> pushing and pushing and pushing and then all of a sudden you get the breakthrough idea. Yeah. Or sometimes, you know, we always look for answers, not the answer. I like to have multiple options on the table that work really powerfully. And then it becomes a choice, not there's only one. And again, school tends to teach us to seek out the answer. You know, we get this very, there's the right answer and the wrong answer versus how many answers can you come up with? And then we can start to evaluate them based on what we want and what we're looking for and the outcomes we want. 
That's amazing. So I'm thinking about your latest book, Forever Skills, and thinking about this process. You know, how how many book titles <laughs> and strap lines did you put together to come up with Forever Skills? Many. Uh, we knew the problem we wanted to solve, which was this constant panic and sense of overwhelm that was happening around the change conversation. And we knew we wanted to solve that problem or to, you know, to make a dent in that problem for people to give them another anchor and perspective to say, hang on a second, let's take a breath and let's get, you know, a little bit of perspective around this issue. So we knew the problem we wanted to solve, but we did lots of iterations. You know, is it transferable skills? Is it forever skills? Is it forever thinking? Is it the change matrix? Is it the three spheres of change? You know, there's so many options that you can do. And, you know, they're just the ones off the top of my head. But at some point you go, yeah, we think it's going to be that one. And you just work out the problem you want to solve. We go, will it, you know, is it memorable? Is it unique? Is it interesting? You know, does it pique your attention? Does it explain something that we haven't had language for before? But is it familiar enough language that people can take a guess as to what it means? Because, again, with thinking, you don't want it to be so abstract that no one gets it. We always say make it new enough. You know, how do you anchor a new idea into familiarity? Because the brain does better with that. Yeah, that's good. So that's that's good that you had, like, you, it wasn't just about creating all these different options. You also had criteria to evaluate the options Yes, as well. and you always need to. You know, judgment is a massive part of creativity and creative judgment Uh, becomes something you develop as well. And I guess when you have a role as running an agency or being the creative director, as I spent a lot of my career as, you really have to work on that judgment skill and you have to balance multiple reasons why an idea is right based on criteria. And a lot of people, you know, which is the best idea? You might have multiple good ideas on the table from multiple teams, but what solves the problem in the ways we need it solved becomes a hugely important. You know, we used to run uh, something called Masterclass and we used to take the best students out of creative school and run them through a survivor-like survival intense thing where people got thrown out every week. Really? Like you took them out into the bush to do stuff or you just... No, like- no, just and they got a creative brief every week and they'd bring their work in and then the people that just weren't as good got thrown out you're like thank you it's time to go (laughs) (laughs) I know I came through that system myself so I just is what we always did but we used to teach people in masterclass to look to listen for the R's there was this moment when I remember this amazing young guy he owns an agency in New York now he's probably not so young anymore a time ticks by for all of us. But anyway, uh, his name was Scott. And we remember telling them to listen for the wisdom of the group because we're saying your judgment's better than your ability to self-judge. And your self-judgment for most of you will come with time, but initially it's terrible. So we used to get, say, you can listen for the moment where the room will go, ah, and nod. Anyway, I'll never forget he just he really had to work very hard it wasn't natural for him but he was just relentless about his work and he stood up one day with this fantastic idea and he just he held it up he explained it and the room went ah and nods and he looked at us he said I'm going to sit down now I'm not going to show you anything else (laughs) this is this wonderful moment where he he saw it and heard it 
and yeah he just he had nothing to prove from that point on it was really a great moment where you go ah I know when it ticks all boxes I needed it to and that's great. I wonder how many iterations he had to go through before many. he got to that. Yeah. Many. <laughs> many, many. He tells the story about how many times he even applied to get into creative school. Oh my like God. It wasn't natural for him. He would say he worked his butt off to be the creative leader he is. Yeah, that's amazing. And I, I think that's a really useful frame for people to know is that to do something good, you, you, you're you not just brushed with the genius wand. No. With the unicorn sprinkle dust. <laughs> so sparkly. You, yeah, you have to actually work for that sparkle. And it reminds me a little bit of um, listening to James Clear when he talked about, he has a very methodical way of doing everything. But yeah. um, he had like a whole spreadsheet with eight pages worth of different subtitles or different titles for his book. And I thought, oh my goodness, I thought you probably like that little <laughs> that little anecdote that he came up with. I do. Well, it's exactly what we teach. You know, it's not accidental. And people think ideas are accidental mm. and they seldom are. And, you know, particularly ideas on repeat. Like most people can maybe have a good idea in their lifetime. But to do it on demand, to do it repeatedly, and, you know, when other people demand it of you, it means it has to become a skill. You just can't hope that lightning strikes. You always go to people, you need a lightning rod. You need a really big lightning rod to get those ideas in. And James is a perfect example of that. It's a methodical working structure to allow him to explore possibilities. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, do you think you need other people to be creative or, or is it best to do creativity on your own? Uh, I think a mix. I think to be creative, you have to be really broadly curious. The creative people I know uh, can be quite introverted and like to retreat to mull, but also they tend to be quite widely curious and they're interested in a lot of things and a lot of people because ideas are often hybrids. And they're often taking that thing from over there and bringing it to another place and reapplying it in a way you haven't seen before. Because, you know, ideas often rely on shortcuts and cultural memes and things that will transmit thinking in another vehicle. So for that reason, you need it to be a mix. So having multiple inputs is hugely important, but also having time to think to yourself. I always say to clients... Brainstorms are great as long as you've got something to bring to the table. When you have a cold brainstorm and, you you know, you've all probably been through this where you show up and we've gone crazy and you've got bean bags and too much candy, oh. lollies and coloured pencils because we're being creative, again, wacky, uh, that you don't really come up with anything particularly useful and you can do anything you want. There's no rules here versus we've set a problem. Everyone's gone away and done some thinking about it and now we're going to bring the ideas to the table and build on them and critique them and question them and add them together and challenge them. And when you do that, interesting magic starts to happen. But again, it's an iterative process. It's a way of going yes and and building on top of it as you go. So brainstorms are good with fodder. Uh, fodder I love that word yeah. <laughs> Brain it's fodder. creative fodder we used to call it creative fodder and uh, you just go you need things to put out there to decide and you need things to put out there to have 
an opinion on. Yeah, that makes sense. Otherwise, like, you, yeah, going in cold, it's like trying to pluck something out of the air. Yeah, and and, and, ho- and it's a wish and a hope that mm-hmm. for some reason. And, you know, not having a problem to solve is one of the biggest problems. It's incredibly difficult to come up with an idea. Well, mm. an idea for what? <laughs> the problem is most people think they're not creative because they can't think of anything. They can't think what they want to have for dinner. What do you want for dinner? Well, I don't know. I don't know what I want for dinner. What do I want for dinner? Um, So we can't even tell ourselves that most of the time. What do you want for Christmas? I don't know. What do you want for Christmas? So these are the questions that you go, we can't even solve that. But the more we give people very specific problems to solve, it's much easier to say, for example, how do you get people to use the stairs, not the escalator, than it is to go, you know, just come up with an idea. So already your brains and everyone's brain that would be listening would go, well, how would we get people to take stairs, not escalators? How would we get people to not sit at their desks all day? You know, the more we creative people see problems and they seek them out, you know, they're curious about problems, I think. So that's that's framing the, the problem a little bit different. Like how do we get people to be more active is different than saying how we can get them to do this instead of that or um, stand up more at work. Is that what you mean? Sort of like nutting down the problem? To yeah, look, the, the more specific you get, the better your solve will be. But also, if I just said to you, come up with an idea, that's incredibly hard. I just picked an example that how do we get people to take the stairs, not the escalator. Right. And you can see by narrowing down, you already are more likely to have an idea than just, have you got a creative idea today, Zoe? Oh, my God. <laughs> and so often we go into brainstorms and we go, hey, people, have you got a creative idea? We're open to anything. Not yeah. have you got any ideas on. Yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah. Um, do you think there's – do you need specific conditions to spark creativity? We talked about having – don't go into a brainstorm cold, so having some fodder, having a problem to solve. Are there any other sort of, um, I don't know, environmental conditions like do you need a bright space do you need a closed space do you need lots of room or little room do you need stimulants in the room like uh, visual stimulants or do you just need a clean desk like what look again I think that varies very much on your brain type and the type of person you are I do know that you know, we used to have a creative saying that not coming up with the idea is part of coming up with the idea uh, so not to stress when you don't have an idea, but to keep pushing your brain and pushing options and, you know, and changing the environment, I would say. You know, sitting your team in a room for five hours brutally trying to extract ideas when they're not flowing, often it's about how do you create a shift of input and trust that your brain is solving the problem. So, you know, and again, there's a difference between just ignoring it. But sometimes we would, when I had creative people struggling, I would send them out to do something else. Okay, you know what? Just leave it for now. Just go to a movie. It's funny how often you'd be sitting in the movie, watching the movie, and something would spark an idea. So getting input from different sources at that point can be hugely helpful because it's not, it's not a clean process. It's a messy process. And I think that's why people associate wacky creativity because you kind of got to get to the point you feel hopeless and you don't know if you've got anything and you can't and to push through that and to get ideas from lots of places and to be quiet and to be in noise and 
to look for stuff and not look for stuff and stare at a blank page. I call it blankophobia, to sit with a blank page and be okay with the blankophobia. And, you know, it's this sort of interesting process about yourself on some way as well. Are you willing to be wrong? Are you willing to put a terrible idea on the table? willing to push beyond what's comfortable are you willing to express that thing that maybe you shouldn't because you can kind of think of reasons why it won't work but maybe if you share it with someone they can help solve those I think those are interesting questions actually you know are you willing to feel uncomfortable are you willing to be wrong and that's where I think a lot of people shy away from doing creative work because no they don't want to be uncomfortable they don't want to be seen as wrong um, mm-hmm. How do you how do you help people develop that kind of emotional resilience around their ideas? I think it's about you know how do you create a safe space uh, where you put ideas out and you're okay for them to be torn down. Creative people get very good at rejection, and uh, people used to ask me a lot why the number of women was so much less in the advertising industry than men and there's many reasons for it and I'm not sure but if this is true but Dan actually said to me once he goes I wonder if men are just better naturally at rejection because traditionally we were the ones asking women out (laughs) so we were much more comfortable with you know am I your card (laughs) Uh, and women get really affronted by rejection as a natural I think we've seen a shift but I wonder if it's true and I think you just have to work on yourself and you have to understand that you're not your ideas so the the criticism of is of the idea you know that sort of third item is just you have to learn to separate the two and it isn't easy and some people can't bear it so the advice is just get really good at distancing yourself from the idea it's why it's important to draw it or write it down or you know to make it a thing that separates it from you so the oh, idea out of your head my idea it. yeah put yeah, it okay. down on a paper so it's a third thing and it, it isn't you so if I stand up and I say this is my idea it's very personal versus I've got this idea and it's sort of on the table and also the more options you have the more comfortable you get at killing them <laughs> you just do you go well I can't make them all you know, the goal for us is always have great multiple options on the table. So we agonize over what to kill, not what to make. Oh, I love it. Yeah, that's a better, well, it's an abundance mentality, isn't it? As opposed yeah. to, I only have this one or two ideas. I don't want to kill either of them. And and if they don't work, I'm in trouble versus, wow, we've got lots of things that could be wonderful. And, you know, look, you look in... So the advertising awards, for example, you used to teach young creative people, I go, look how many, go and look at how many great bits of work have been done for washing powder, for example, to tell us that it gets our clothes clean or makes our whites whiter. There's so many wonderful ways to solve that problem of, it's a communication one in that bucket. But, you know, they still keep coming up with beautiful ideas and it's as old as products themselves. So there's no shortage of good ideas. It's that willingness to trust that there's still another way to solve it. Oh, that's really helpful. <laughs> you just think about it. It's like, yeah, people have been trying to sell soap for a long time. Yeah. And they keep coming up with different stories and images around and words around it. So, yeah. That's yeah, I mean, Hollywood, look how many, you know, Hollywood's been selling us the same stories, you know, throughout history and books and things, and they're still really interesting ways to wrap up those stories 
Oh, and you know what? I'm a bit over like Spider-Man though. Do we really need three <laughs> different versions of Spider-Man? Come on. It's very confusing. <laughs> I know. I'm like, wait, I can't remember which, who's this? And at what point is it not creativity? So, you know, mm. at what point is it rehash and repetition versus creating something new? And I think that becomes a question for us all to wonder about. And people do get sick of the same. So as we always say, make it new enough. So what's the new bit? And I think that's what you're resisting is there's nothing new enough in it that you go, just feels the same. I've just given another two hours of my life the same. Yeah. Whereas I think like, for example, that when you're looking at big movies like that, the, the James Bond series with the latest James Bond, they just made him different enough, like new enough. Yeah. Like he was a totally different iteration. He was a bit rough around the edges, a bit brutal compared to the Mr. Suave, swanky and yeah. misogynistic slash sexist <laughs> kind of version, which was playful for of its the time. time yes <laughs> um uh, you wrote an article recently which i thought was fantastic about fixed growth and creative mindsets and i thought that was a lovely lovely set of distinctions about how the creative mindset is one step further i think you called a level 11 on growth mindset can <laughs> you talk us through what the, what you mean by that by a level 11 <laughs> the level 11 how does the creative mindset take the growth mindset to a whole new level well i think the creative mindset is slightly more I'm going to say kamikaze it's probably not the right thing to say uh but you seek it out so I think a growth mindset is still responsive to the place we find ourselves in and I think a creative mindset is a bit putting ourselves in the place so that's why it's level 11 it's just a we're seeking out problems not embracing problems you know, oh, there's a problem that's showing up, I better embrace it, uh, is a growth mindset. Whereas a creative mindset is, where's a problem I can solve? So we actually put ourselves into a space of this growth and we do it voluntarily and willingly. And we want to do it over and over and over again because it becomes incredibly rewarding and fun. So we almost find the fun in the challenge of growth. So again, it's it's very similar. Like there's a lot of crossover, but it just dials it up and it makes you excited to jump in. And the others are a bit more put up with it. Yeah, I get that. I think there's a lot of mindset work that goes on to being successful in the creative space. What do you think is your most important beliefs? Uh well, I think I've talked about a couple of them. So that there's always more than one way to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. So that there's always multiple answers, that you are not your ideas. They're not you personally. Uh, that you shouldn't be so arrogant to presume that you can change the world. I think it's been an important belief that you think the world needs changing, that you get all righteous that you, you know, that you hold a service mindset. Is this useful? Not you're broken and I need to fix you Mm. and let me show you the way. (laughs) I think that becomes really important for creative people that they don't lose touch with why they want to fix things and solve things. That It becomes uh, that you're still in service and often create young creative people that you bring into the industry with this naive notion that they're going to be cooler and more elite and, you know, a bit more special. And I'm like, no, no, you're you're actually in the pop culture game. You're in you're in the game of mass and how do you affect and help mass thinking and can you change behavior at scale? 
and look, some, you know, again, if we delve into artistry, sometimes its ability is to challenge smaller pockets and sometimes big pockets. But I think commercial creativity, which is what I teach and live and breathe, is about how do you get scale to the creativity and how does it have a purpose that serves? And I think that's been a really key belief and important for me. That's really fascinating work. So how do you actually cause behavioural change at scale? Yeah. I mean, I think that's it. You know, there's so many clever, creative people uh, who in all kinds of fields, you know, science and mathematics and companies and entrepreneurs and schools and they're everywhere and they're sparking change on the scale with their thinking. You know, they're challenging the way we've always done things. They're wondering why not and what if. And that's creativity, I think. Well, commercial creativity. It's like, well, what's the use of it? What does it do? It's not just here to be cool or challenging or provocative for no reason. It's here to serve and to drive positive change. Yeah, I love that. So as a very curious person, um, speaking <laughs> of, I'm curious too, but I think you're more curious. <laughs> what are you most curious about people? Oh, uh, look, you know, my favorite thing, I have a tool that I sometimes teach, which I call the behavior gap. And I'm most curious about the gap between what people say they do and what they actually do. I think great products sit in that gap and they go, people want this, but they do this and we can help them get closer to where they want to be. I think that's a perennial problem, isn't it? Like that's where all bad habits sit. That's where all uh, lost hopes and dreams sit. That's where all these aspirational desires sit and are yet not fulfilled. So I love that. I love that as a purpose for commercial creativity, you know, so how do you can get people to bridge that chasm and to get to where they want to go? Uh, that's beautiful. Yeah, it keeps me busy <laughs> because it's it's always the way, you know, it's just that's human beings, you know. I'm eternally interested in people and not who, you know, this sort of dichotomy of who they think they should be and who they really are and freedom comes with accepting who they are and in that acceptance of designing and creating ways for them to get closer to who they'd love to be. And I think that for me is the best work when someone gets out of their own way uh, and is able to create a new possibility. That's the ultimate creativity, right, is how do you create a new possibility for yourself? So they worry less about the gap and they worry about, you know, ways they can. So if you can create new systems for yourself, if you can create a new belief for yourself, if you can create a new frame for yourself. You know, when, when you get to help people do that stuff, it's transformative and it's still creativity because the ultimate creativity is creating yourself, right? It's creating beliefs and behaviours and ways of seeing the world that allow you to move forward. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That was just stunning. I'm just sitting here letting all that wisdom just ting into my brain <laughs> the ultimate creativity is creating yourself and you're right if you can help people adopt beliefs and frameworks and systems in order to move them towards that that is the best creative expression so that sounds very personal and so do you work on like the both the personal and organizational level so how does how does that work in the context of your work 
Yeah, no, it, yeah, my work is very varied. Imagine creativity. Uh, <laughs> and I don't think you can, I, I'm not sure you can affect one without the other. I don't think, you know, again, life is not linear nor tidy. We like it to be. We like to go, well, if we fix it, it's, you know, human beings go up to our offices and our workplaces fundamentally create the culture and the belief systems and they create the energy and the momentum and all those things. So unless we deal with that, we can't necessarily create a new frame for the organisation. So you do need to address both. You know, I was working with a big tech company recently and one of the women on the program, you know, she said, I so and often it's the work of I'd checked out. Like I'd so had given myself the belief that they didn't need me, that I wasn't the right fit, that, you know, I was just showing up. I don't think anybody wants to show up to work and have it not matter that they were there. And, you know, by creating a new possibility for her with tools and thinking and it wasn't none of the work was about that but she suddenly found herself you know she rang me and she was just so excited she said my whole world's changed nothing to do you know nothing to do with me except hey here's here's some information but her her whole system changed and her belief changed and her energy changed and her intention changed and imagine she created a different framework and all of a sudden, her entire work changed. It's, you know, it's what you create, right? Yeah. And it's what Amazing. you create. And we can't always control what happens to us, which is said all the time. It. But we can create a response that helps us progress forward. And I think that's some of the most interesting work we do. We can't control what our competitors do in the marketplace, but we can create a response that allows us to progress forward. We can't control what life throws at us, but we can create, you know, a way and a framework for us to move forward. I always say resilience is a creative skill um, because it's how do I create a possibility I can I can get on with life with. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I do a lot of work in helping people reframe their experiences and how they're thinking about a situation, which is a creative process in itself. And I love that you've linked those two things together. I hadn't seen that link before. Uh, yeah, most people think resilience is an endurance sport. Yeah. Uh, and it's what we think. How much can I tolerate? How much can I endure? How much can I survive versus how do I create a belief and a framework and a possibility that allows me to step forward? And they might be tiny, itty-bitty steps, but it allows me to keep momentum forward, not get stuck in the past. I think that's the ultimate beautiful creative skill. It is. That's awesome. So one last final question. You've published a few books. You've always doing something new. What are you creating next? <laughs> well, it's an excellent question. A couple of TV show ideas. Really? You're uh, going to have your own TV quite, show? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. It's just, again, you know, creative people are always creating crazy ideas and things that could happen. Uh, so there's a couple of thoughts around that that are getting looked at and developed. And I'm just considering what the next book will be actually and I think it will be a book that goes much more into the heart of commercial creativity mm. and uh and looks into that bucket so just in the process of that and you get a couple of new keynotes as well actually so just working away you know it's eternal and you know the fun thing is that it doesn't stop and you keep playing and you know it is play 
and joy. But I think the world is starting to realise as AI increases that their creativity needs go up. So I think it's a really exciting time as well to work in the space. And so many businesses and companies are ready to, to go, well, it's not just the formulaic thinking and it's not just the being good at systems and it's not just being efficient, efficiency experts coming in. Maybe it's actually about what we can create that will define future success. So I think that's a really great time for all of us really in business to sort of be around and good for me because that's what I can help with. Oh, that's great. I, I'm so looking forward to what comes next and to reading your work. Um, you're so eloquent and so smart and insightful. It's just been a pleasure talking with you today. So thank you so much, Kieran. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Zoe. It is always a joy to get to the privilege of to talk about what you love to do. I think Kieran Flanagan has got to be one of the most intelligent people I've ever met. I loved her exquisite insights. They were so beautifully distilled. They rang like temple bells for me. It was just a delight to hear her observations about how things connect and how things go together in the commercially creative space. A couple of key points I took away from that is brain sweat. Work it until the ideas come forth. Back yourself into a creative thinking corner until the only way out is through with a brilliant idea. Uh, Another piece was to frame the problem and to really use the problem as a center point for generating ideas. You can't just pluck good ideas out of thin air. And the third piece is that creativity is a skill for resilience. I love that. I thought that was awesome. Something for you that we have coming up is that we have an innovation masterclass in Canberra on February 4th, and it gives us thinking tools to help generate creative ideas. So when we have the tools and filters and frameworks, it can actually help gear our brain into action to develop some amazing commercially creative ideas. So if you want to check that out, the link will be in the show notes, and I'd love to see you there generating some awesome ideas. In the meantime, live well, lead well.